0: Welcome to the PoliticalBetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Well, these days in British politics, it's almost hard to know where to begin. We had the Queen's speech today, but Theresa May, having won the election uh, a couple of weeks ago, junked most of her manifesto. Meanwhile, Brexit negotiations seem to have got off to a rocky start for the government, with David Davis agreeing to the EU's timetable uh, for negotiations. Now, some say that this is a minor bump in the road that doesn't matter and we should judge the government on the end result, whereas others say this is a sign of things to come. I guess we will wait and see uh, which is true. But as we move forward into Brexit, it's important to monitor public opinion, to see how it shifts, if it does, and what that means for politics in a very delicate situation in Westminster. We're going to be following a lot of that on this podcast, and what it means for the two main parties, but the other smaller parties too. And to dissect some of this today, I'm joined by Adam Drummond from Opinion and Dr. Mark, Ta- Mark Pack excuse me, of the Liberal Democrat Newswire. Gents, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks Lovely to you. be back.
0: Um, so guys, I mean, let's start with the Queen's speech today. Not a lot of polling yet, uh, of course, on, on what happened. But Mark, I mean, what was your reaction to today's events?
1: Well, I must admit, I was slightly transfixed by the crown being transported in its own vehicle uh, to Parliament <laughs> that was, which probably says something about the actual content of the Queen's speech that the method of transportation <laughs> for the crown was the highlight. I mean, as as you said in the introduction, it was really gutted of most of the Conservative manifesto. Um, I don't think that's actually necessarily a bad thing in a way. In the yeah, the normal complaint about the way ministers operate in Britain is that ministers are so desperate to do something that catches the headlines is that you get this complete initi- initiative amongst every new minister tries to introduce a whole load of new things, scrap what their predecessor did, etc. So in a way, a bit of... Stability is is probably no bad thing, especially given. You're saying this is a
0: strong and stable Queen speech? Well well
1: I, I I think there is an irony that, that most of the time people complain that politicians and ministers are hyperactive. And then when you get a Queen speech that isn't hyperactive, I mm-hmm. mean is is the somnolent version uh, of, of a Queen speech, people then suddenly say, Oh, but there's not enough in it, there's not enough in it. Um, and you know, purely from the point of view of Whitehall's capacity to do things, simply getting the Brexit legislation right. It's going to pretty much eat up mm. all the capacity there is to do things. So although the Conservatives are probably not doing this for the right reason, the outcome of having a Queen Speech that is pretty much Brexit and very little else is, is not a bad outcome. Maybe I think, better really. for the country.
0: Yeah. I mean, Adam, it's an interesting juxtaposition, really, isn't it? Because on the one hand, now the Tories don't have to force through all these unpopular things which led to them losing their <coughs> majority. Uh, fox hunting springs to mind uh, with the grammar schools of course as well but on the other hand it does sort of show just how much uh, Theresa May's uh, stock has fallen doesn't
2: it? Uh, exactly, I think uh, Mark is is completely right the, the content of the Queen's speech is recognition of two things, one of them is that the Tories no longer have a majority. So therefore, they can't push through things like fox hunting or grammar schools or other sort of pet projects of the right which don't command that much support and which may have been instrumental in them losing their majority. And then the other is the fact that, again, as Mark said, Brexit is now everything, especially given the diminished capacity of the civil service. I think it's a 10, 20% reduction over the since 2010. So the people actually tasked with delivering Brexit, along with all the other things that the governments promised. There's not the capacity there to deliver it, so it 's actually kind of a welcome recognition that this is an enormous task, the biggest that the civil servants been ar- the civil the civil service has been asked to do since you know the second world war mm. so it's quite refreshing actually that there is just a focus on that
0: and It certainly did seem that jeremy corbyn is uh, has a spring in his step at the moment doesn't it with mm. uh, with his um defeat that very much felt like a victory to all intents and purposes didn't it um let 's move on to brexit. you both bring up brexit and rightly so. Um, regular listeners to this podcast will know that through the Polling Matters opinion series of uh, surveys that we've been doing, we've been tracking some opinions on this and also looking at some um, ad hoc things as we've gone along. And one of the questions that regular listeners will know that we've been tracking is this Id- about this idea of a second referendum. So what we said was for, to remind people... And um, Once we know what terms the government has negotiated, should there be a second referendum on Britain's membership of the EU where voters can choose between leaving under the terms negotiated or remaining in the EU after all? So that second referendum question. And we did that this week amongst a nationally representative sample of 2005 again. And we found that there's not much movement. 38% said, yes, there should be a second referendum, Um, unsurprisingly driven by Remainers. 64% of Remainers want another referendum. Um, But 26% don't. And this is something that we consistently see that we'll come back to. uh, Younger voters tend to be the most keen There's a 12 point lead for having a second referendum amongst the 18 to 34s. So not surprising who who drives that. But a majority, 51%, said it should not be um, a second referendum. And if we look at um, when we've trended this over time, in March it was 52%. In December it was 50, 52%. So there's not really much change on this. And I guess, folks, this sort of shows really that this idea of a second referendum, I'll come to you, Mark, given the Liberal mm. Democrats' policy on this, remains stubbornly um, unpopular. Um, I mean, I must admit, surprisingly so. We've had a general election, we've had the majority of the Conservatives uh, in the Houses of Parliament lost, yet this particular issue has not changed one iota. It's it's interesting, isn't it?
1: Um, I'm not sure I would have expected the numbers to really shift as yet, because... The debate and discussion and media coverage around what's happening with Brexit is full of terminology at the moment, which is hard enough to understand even if you're a real expert. You know, phrases like the single market get used all the time as if it is self-evident what the single market is. And I think for most members of the public, this is a very abstract, almost quite abstruse topic because it's not something that you can immediately relate to either what your view is on how the country should be run or customs what might affect Union your life. Well. Exactly. Who, what is the customs? Who, who, who what is, want to be part of what custom is EFTA? Junior? Is EFTA an international agreement or the name of a football player? You know, it's it's really obscure Good stuff. Effort. Yeah, exactly. He's um <laughs> and so I think when the numbers might shift is when we actually see what a deal looks like. Mm. And therefore it begins to ah, oh, this is what the impact is going to be on immigration. Mm. This is what the impact is going to be on going on a foreign holiday this is what the impact is going to be on the jobs in the car factory locally. That's when I think the numbers might shift. Obviously, the other aspect of this, which is intriguing... Could go, just, to, just to interject sorry. there, though,
0: it mm. could go the other way, couldn't it? If, if if the EU brings in a huge divorce bill, and um, there's other issues that get uh, come up in the um, negotiations, it could go the other way, couldn't it? And people become
1: more hardened
0: against the EU.
1: Oh, definitely. And I think that will be probably the big political battle. I, it's really hard to see how the government will get the have cake and eat cake sort of outcome that Boris Johnson has set out his stall for achieving. Um, and then when we don't both get our cake and get to eat our cake, the question will be, do you blame Brussels or do you blame the, the Conservatives? And if you would ask me that question a couple of months ago, I would have said it's probably... You know, the, the the party that's in power with lots of friendly media behind it, et cetera, is going to have a really good opportunity to blame foreigners for mm. something not turning out the way they wanted. Of course, the Conservatives are so weakened by the referendum result. But I think that's much more of a, of a sort of even Stevens question now as to, to where the blame would be uh, would be apportioned. And
0: presumably, Brussels knows that. I mean, Adam, we've been looking at this question, mm. as I mentioned in the introduction to it uh, for a while. There's a stubborn one in four remainers, isn't there, that just don't want another yeah, referendum so Who are these people?
2: Well, so the, the story of, of every time that we've asked this, so the, the story of, of tracking it. So going back to December, you had basically a consistent block of people, about sort of 51 52%, which unsurprisingly, given that that's the referendum result, um, didn't want a second referendum. And so what's happened since December has been that uh, the percentage of Remain voters who do want a second referendum has gone up slightly so it's gone up from about sort of um, 59% to about 64% so it's, it's it's unified slightly but not in a, in a huge way um, and that's driven very much by, um, among people who voted Remain, 26% of them um, say they don't want a second referendum and that's driven very much by Tory voters mm-hmm. so before the election when you know, the position of the Conservative Party was I mean Regardless of whatever it might be now, um, the position of the Conservative Party was: we are the hard Brexit party. We are the you know, ending free movement, uh, pulling out of the uh, European Court of Justice, etc. Um, so there's an element of you know t- yeah, t- yeah, towing the party line there. Um, so if the result of the referendum of the sorry of the general election is that. That policy has become slightly sort of tainted and you have people like Ruth Davidson, people like Philip Hammond and and other sort of pro-Remain Tories being less um, afraid to speak up for things like staying in the single market or prioritizing the economy over cutting immigration. You you might expect to see um, some change there in the numbers. So you might expect to see more Tory Remainers start to edge towards Mm -hmm. this second referendum policy.
1: Um, But we haven't seen any of it yet. One one thing I wonder in terms of the wording of the question is there are probably a few people, and maybe it is only a few people, so this isn't significant, who whose view is that, that yeah that once the terms of the deal are clear, it would be really good if there's a way of rejecting Brexit, but who think that referendum is really not a good way yeah. of doing it, and you mm-hmm. know there there is an extent to which people, and particularly remainers, yeah, toy but, numbers. but yeah. also yeah maybe some. Uh, maybe some levers but maybe particularly Tory remainers actually referendums are not a very good way of doing it indeed slightly weirdly uh, Tim Farron during the general election in one of the uh, one of the sort of uh, I think it was the BBC question time uh, show when he was asked about referendums was actually very disparaging about look I really don't like referendums <laughs> mm-hmm. anymore he obviously added the caveat about well we except for this one, one. <laughs> but the spirit of his answer and I think is one that a lot of people can, can sympathise with is we didn't really have a great debate on the substance of the issues, the sorts of things that are now being heavily debated about what a Brexit might look like, didn't really come up very much in the referendum say, campaign.
0: I, I find myself being very lonely in this, but I, I don't have a problem with referendums, actually, referenda, actually. I mean, I, I look at, you know, people say parliament should be the thing that decides this, we're a representative democracy and so on. If you look at general election campaigns, they're often mm-hmm. they, what they end up boiling down to is often no more nuanced yeah. and clever, yeah. or, or like the one we've just had, like the one which, we've just yes. had, or the one before that, or the one before you, know, Edward Ed this bacon sandwich. We you know, just had a
2: general election campaign where almost nobody mentioned Brexit, which yeah. is kind of the defining issue of the time. Um, the other thing that I wonder, I wonder whether it's feeding into the no referendum, no second referendum numbers, is a sense of like Brexit fatigue as well, because it's not when i there's a, there's a friend of mine who voted leave and he said the main argument for him for voting remain was at least it would stop us talking about it for a while mm. and that was his main regret about voting leave was that now is what we talk about all the time so i wonder if some people who aren't that don't feel that strongly one way or the other about remain leave but just they see this question and go oh god not another referendum and yeah. say maybe not for that reason there is this
0: kind of get on with it mentality yeah. isn't there that definitely seems to exist I want to pick up on one of the points that Mark alluded to earlier, which is around this idea of understanding some of the um, the nuances of Brexit, customs union, single market, this sort of thing. Servation had a poll out for Good Morning Britain early this week, and uh, again, congratulations to Servation on their um, success at the election. Um, And there was a couple of items in that that I I thought were interesting. The first was that 65% thought that Brexit negotiations should not be delayed in light of the general election result. So, again, very much get on with it. Um, But there was also a question that said, in light of the general election result, which of the following do you prefer? A hard Brexit involving leaving the EU Single Market and Customs Union, 35% back to that. And a soft Brexit, not involving leaving the EU Single Market and Customs Union, don't uh, that's fifty-five percent and ten percent said don't know. And I must say that I mean not picking on salvation here, but a lot of people I saw on social media were running away with this idea that oh there's a clear majority now for a soft Brexit. But the problem with some of this, which I think Mark alluded to earlier, was okay, there's a 20-point lead for soft Brexit, but there's no mention of immigration here. And in reality, is that binary choice mm-hmm. what, what we what we have in front of us? I mean what what do we think of this? Because you do have this this narrative at the moment the hard Brexiters, if that's a thing, they say, well, look, you know, both both of the major parties support leaving the single market, therefore the general election is a mandate to do that. The op- opponents, and Adam alluded to some of the mm-hmm. people, like Ruth Davidson, um, who'll be on this side, think, no, 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 there isn't a majority now for a, a hard Brexit in Parliament because of who's in Parliament. So there's a real confused picture, Mark, isn't there, about what's going yeah, on? What, I, what do we make of some of this?
1: I mean, I think... I think there are two almost slightly contradictory, but not quite contradictory conclusions one can draw from this question. One is, as you absolutely say, because this question involves things like single market, customs union, which people are just most of the public are not very familiar with the details of those terms and exactly what they mean. You can't really read over from this question to what that means. The public will mean will view a particular mm-hmm. deal when 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 it's published in all its glory. But I think what we can conclude from this is there is a general sense here that the public, about only about a third of the public, are in favour of a look, just leave regardless, don't really care what it is, just leaving is going to be better than anything mm-hmm. else. That sort of almost a David Davis type, just you know, slightly cavalier attitude as I would describe it. There is some support for it, but it is very much a minority support. So I think you can draw that conclusion from it. Now what people will view as but other polls, a reasonable you, deal is. In, in other polls where you
0: put items of what the deal should include will say immigration is really, really important, won't yeah. they? I mean, Adam, what do you think?
2: So I kind of agree. I from this I basically get that Hard Brexit sounds nastier than soft Brexit. If you think about it, you know, what do you prefer, a hard landing or a soft landing? One of those clearly sounds yeah. better than the other. Because you could say full Brexit or partial Brexit. Yeah, it sounds completely you could, different, doesn't yeah. it? Or you could say clean Brexit or messy Brexit. Yeah. They, they all kind of mean mm-hmm. similar things, but it's it's about the wording. So the thing that, uh, whenever we ask questions like this, we always put um, the trade-off between, which is what it all sort of fundamentally seems to come down to, is would you rather um, be able to... Uh, control immigration strictly uh, even if it means some damage to the economy or would you rather stay in the single market and and uh, not risk that damage to the economy even if it means you can't control immigration and what we have when we do that is always a much more balanced um, balanced uh, set of results and it, it varies slightly sometimes controlling immigration is ahead sometimes um Staying in the single market and protecting economic growth is ahead, but it's always around about sort of thirty eight or so percent for each side, and there's always a big chunk of people who don't really want to make that um, make that choice. Yeah, and actually, that's one of the one of the challenges with doing any kind of polling around this. And again, not to knock observation, because you know, writing questions Which about this the kind one of front yeah. of us, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. writing questions about this kind of technical stuff mm. is difficult. Yeah. And the way that you write it is always going to bleed yeah. through into how people people think about it. But um, what what we're effectively doing with that question. Is forcing a choice and saying this is the reality that you do have to trade off these two things. And actually, lots of people don't accept that that is a trade-off and don't uh, and you know, don't believe that um, restricting immigration will cause economic damage or that leaving the single market would be bad for the economy. So lots of people see that as a false choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so for that reason, it's really difficult to actually poll accurately mm-hmm. on this kind of issue.
1: And even with you know with that very wording, I think immigration conjures up a very clear sometimes maybe inaccurate, but very clear image in people's minds as to what that means, mm. etc. Single market is much more nebulous. And, um, you know, even if you talk about things like free trade, etc., that can feel quite removed from people's lives. It, it's It's this question about, does it affect you know, you in your job or your friends, your neighbours, your family, your community, those mm. things, which are very, which will end up being very real and tangible if this is the route we go down, I think are very hard to capture in questions. And that's why I think the broad brush sense of, you know, do people want some sort of deal or not? Definitely mm. we can draw from these polls, but not much else beyond that.
2: Um, and actually just on that, something that we, a bit of work that we did with the Social Market Foundation a couple of weeks ago um, about, you know, the trade-offs required about immigration. Mm. So we had that same question of um, balancing... Um, the the two let like, to put it in quotes things that people want right are controlling immigration and the economy to grow mm. and so when we ask people which is the higher priority and then of those who it was we re, again reasonably sort of evenly balanced mm. of those who said um, their priority was restricting immigration we then asked them okay are you still in favour of this even if it means things like uh, you know higher inflation or um, you know the government deficit rising because there are fewer people paying in taxes and, and uh, relatively more people taking out um or perhaps uh, you know the state pension age having to rise in order to balance that kind of thing so once you put things in quite sort of tangible terms then actually it becomes a lot easier for people to answer mm. one of the things that we've
0: um that I've been floating i must I must say is this idea of a transitional deal you know I, I wrote about this quite Soon after the general action, I, I said that I, I thought, actually, given the volatility of public opinion at the moment, given the unknown of the parliamentary arithmetic, I think that you can't rule anything out, anything in, even remaining after all. And uh took a bit of flack off it from the usual suspects, but I think actually it was reasonably well received. But in that piece, I did say um, that I thought the most likely situation was going to be that we we're going to have to kick this into the long grass to some extent and uh, have some sort of transitional arrangement. Whether that's true or not, we'll have to wait and see. But we've we've polled on this as part of the Polling Matters Opinion series. I want to sort of cut, cut this down a bit because we gave a three-paragraph long description. But the key bits are, we said, given the amount of time it usually takes to negotiate major trade deals between countries, some have suggested that there should be a transitional period of a few years after March uh, 2019, where the UK would remain in the EU single market and customs union while it negotiates a, free, a future trading arrangement with the EU. This would avoid a sudden economic shock, I think we should, that's important to dwell on, and give the UK time to sort out the best possible arrangement, but it would also mean uh, being bound by EU rules and accepting freedom of movement for the duration of the transition period would this be, and then we asked whether it was unacceptable, well, acceptable or unacceptable on a four-point scale, so completely acceptable, somewhat acceptable, somewhat unacceptable, completely unacceptable. And of course, we gave people a don't know option or no opinion option. And what we found was that there was a, there was a pretty clear majority, I think it's uh, 58% said uh, this was acceptable, 26% said it wasn't. Now, I suppose we can always pick through... Some of the wording here, and I would, I would hold my hands up and say, uh, this would avoid a sudden economic shock. It's probably the, the most contentious thing here because if you're a if you're a hard brexiter, you would probably say to me, there won't be a sudden economic shock, so you're avoiding something that won't happen anyway. And I, I totally accept that. Um there does seem to be at least some appetite or, or or at least acceptance of the idea of a transitional arrangement. Um, overwhelming, about eight and ten remainers back this. Levers are split pretty much down the middle. 41% think it's acceptable. 44% think it's unacceptable. I mean, I want to get both of your perspectives on this, not just the poll question, really, but also just the reality. I mean, do, do we think that the sort of Philip Hammond idea of a transitional arrangement is likely or, do, or, or, or are we kidding ourselves? In reality, Theresa May and David Davis are in charge for that. One and. The, The the clock is ticking. I mean, Mark, what's
1: your... Yeah, well, one of the other interesting elements of that, the question wording, is this point about accepting freedom of movement. Because, of course, one of the slight oddities about the whole freedom of movement debate has been that the EU allows member states to impose much greater restrictions on freedom of movement than the British government ever has done. Um, so, there is another sort of angle there of flexibility that if there is a government wanting a smooth transition and wanting a smooth transition that maybe lasts for several years, introducing some of those. Restrictions on freedom of movement is just what might give them more political room for manoeuvre. I think the big unknown in in all of this, in a way, is how long does the current government last, and Mm. when does the next election happen? Because you know, this is part of the reason for having had the early election this year was that sense of trying to get the election out of the way before the two year period kicks in, and therefore at the next general election to be able to say, "Yep, we've definitely left." Um, Now, of course, there's the risk that we might be in the middle of a transition period or about to start a transition period where. A government might get caught by that sense of actually people feel neither they're there, it's really got uh you know, it's new neither has it really left the EU, because there is a plans to leave the EU still, it can't appeal to remain voters either, that it could get caught in that in that no man's mm-hmm. land. And so I think it's really, you know, one of the clear lessons from the last year is it's really hard to predict <laughs> these well, things I'm, that many years in the future.
0: I, I have this theory that I think the best thing that could happen to Theresa May, if it is still Theresa May, is that Parliament rejects the deal she brings back because it forces a general election on the concept of leaving the EU. Adam, one of the things we see regularly is that there there is this hardcore of leavers that just want to leave under any circumstances, like isn't
2: that, there? I quite wanted you to finish that prediction there. What happens at that election? Well, God well, knows. Well, I'm not well, going to well, say but 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 I think <laughs> but no, but I think that is the right now as we sit here, that is the most conceivable
0: way you could see mm-hmm. the Conservatives winning a general election is by essentially...
2: By we're, doing what they failed to do in... Vote in, for us to secure Brexit. But yeah. to be honest, um,
0: I don't know. It's... Re- I'm not going to yeah, give it up. Except if <laughs> Labour
1: is still led by Jeremy Corbyn, you know, he can quite plausibly say, no, you don't have to vote Tory, you can vote Labour mm. to still leave. And then you'll have the whole question about whether the Labour coalition that Corbyn, much to my surprise, managed to very successfully stitch together of getting a lot of very ardent Remainers well, to support him might yet fall apart. When Bre- and the Lib Dems will come through the middle. We'll come to the Lib um, Dems in a minute.
0: But when Brexit <laughs> itself actually happens, I don't want to compare it to the Second World War quite mm. the way it sounds, but... There's something that, rem- that in Brexit and just the, the, how important it is for this country in terms of uh, a change that reminds me of Churchill leading Britain through the Second World mm. War. And I'm not comparing Theresa May to Winston Churchill, <laughs> other than uh, other than
2: this other this than opposites. Conf- this <laughs> listening, he's nodding his head. He this, is. This, this,
0: this confused metaphor I'm, or, or comparison I'm making. But there was a big event: Conservatives in power and Labour sort of won an election based on who wins the peace, almost. Mm. And I I do think that Labour will have a very, very powerful Mm. argument when Brexit's actually happened to say, right, Brexit's now happened. What sort of country do you want to live in? And you want Mm. to live in this this nicer Labour version of that country. And almost Brexit's dealt with now who owns the piece. I can see Labour being very, very effective at winning votes in that environment because it's a clean break, it's a change Mm. and that sort of thing. Whereas if it's a bit messier and up in the air, Maybe it's uh, we, we, we fight the old battles. Anyway, if that makes any sense, uh, do let me know on Twitter. Um, let's move on to the Lib Dems, uh, Mark. Um, obviously, e- easy, to f- easy to forget with all the talk about the, the two main parties. And, and, and shame, <laughs> shame. And the, uh, and the 80% plus of the vote that they got in the general election. A uh, difficult election for the Lib Dems, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim Farron's since resigned. Um, obviously, their policy of second referendum... Didn't really cut through in this election. I think I wrote about that uh, on on the Lib Dem news as well. Where do you see the party at the moment? I mean, obviously, the leadership question is, looms large. Mm. Um, but before we even get to that, what do you think? What, what, how do you feel about like the Liberal Democrats' prospects in the immediate term?
1: Well, I, the the big opportunity, but I think risk as well for Liberal Democrats is that Labour stitched together, as I was saying earlier, this quite unusual coalition. <laughs> of people who are keen leavers, and in a way that's partly why they managed to hoover up a chunk of UKIP voters in all sorts of different places, along with a huge sway of very ardent Remainers, people who the Liberal Democrats were really hopeful, you know, even just a few weeks ago, of winning over many of them. Um, and will Labour be able to keep that coalition together? I think the the optimistic outlook for Liberal Democrats is to say that over the next two years, with a hung parliament, with lots of votes where actually Labour could defeat the Tories, Uh, but those would be on issues which require you to take a more pro... Pro Remain attitude than Jeremy Corbyn has, it may well be that the, you know the, the, those strains in the Labour Party return on a massive scale, and therefore there is huge scope for Liberal Democrats to recover. Not, by no means guaranteed, but you can see this, you can see the gap in the political spectrum mm. still there, and you can see the route through which, uh, through which it might happen. Um, the other element which is, which will be fascinating, of course, is although the Liberal Democrats are not that well positioned in that many parliamentary seats, there's a good swathe of seats across southern England that are held by the Tories, where the Lib Dems are. Not close in a that you, you would think we would target the seat at a general election, but are in a good enough position to plausibly pull off a by-election shock. Right. And I mean, it's a slightly every by-election
0: counts in this parliament. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, it
1: will require only one by-election to remove that Tory margin. Where if the DUP at the moment abstain, the Tories can still get something through. If the Tories lose a seat, that margin goes. If the Tories lose two seats, then well, the parliamentary arithmetic gets absolutely fascinating. So depending on where the parliamentary by-elections pop up, I mean, Tim Farron had quite a lot of luck in a way with the sequence of parliamentary by-elections during his time of lead as leader. If his successor has a similar run of luck. Um, uh, in that respect and obviously sometimes by-elections are caused by deaths which are which is you know truly truly tragic and we would wish they, they 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 don't happen but if 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 by-elections happen in seats where it is the liberal Democrats with a chance of taking a seat off the Tories you can see a slight run of parliamentary by-election success plus that gap in the political spectrum could put the party back on the political map you know mm-hmm. within within a fairly short period of time. Or none of that might happen.
0: And 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 you've recently, for all of Dem Newswire, you've you've Mm. conducted a survey of of readers, haven't you, um, on on the future of the party, but also the leadership question. Um, I just wondered uh, if you could explain a Mm. bit about that survey and and some of the key
1: key findings. And I guess the best way of describing it is as a semi-rigorous survey. It's (laughs) definitely a notch or two above uh, voodoo polls in terms of having protections against people doing multiple voting and non-members voting, etc., but not a fully sort of scientific opinion poll. Um, but the methodology that I used when I did a similar survey uh, in the last leadership contest had it as a much closer contest between Farron and lamb than, than many people thought. And actually it was nearly spot on. So n equals one so far, but it's a good a, a, a good one. Hundred percent win yeah, ratio exactly. so far. and what I found this time round was if Jo Swinson had decided to run, she would have won, you know, very, very clearly. I'd sort of because because the survey was run before nominations yeah, had even even opened, I named all eleven MPs other than Tim Farron asked people to pick between them, and in a field of eleven, Joe came out with fifty seven percent of first preferences, which is about as landslide as you can get without being a dictator really. Um, however, if you remove her name from the frame and if you look at who people would vote for instead. It came out pretty close between Norman Lamb and Vince Cable. Uh, if, let's say, we end up with a with a, a Lamb versus Cable versus Davy contest, which is what we might do, it ends up being a sort of Lamb versus Cable final round. And likewise, if it's just Lamb and Cable standing, it's, it, it, it's again, it's quite close between them, but with Lamb ahead of Cable by about 52 to 48. So small margin within sort of any sort of margin of error of a, of a survey like what this. What was the sample size? But like? The sample size was around uh, just over 2,000. Okay. So, decent sample yeah. size. Mm. The question, obviously, is representativeness of sample. Sure. Um, if anything, I would suspect the sample is slightly skewed, actually, uh, in favour of Ince Cable, because it's slightly overweighted to London, and... Uh, and it's a reasonable assumption that Vince Cable, being a London MP, is probably more popular amongst London members than elsewhere. There's also this complete unknown that I asked people how they voted at the last leadership election. And far fewer people said they were members at the time and voted for Norman Lamb than was actually the case. Right. Uh, but that might be the usual false memory. More people remember voting right. for the winner, etc. So you, it it would be foolish to reweight the figures to fully reflect the actual result last time. But those two factors suggest that... If anything, maybe, maybe Norman Lamb is slightly further ahead of Vince Cable. Of course, there'll be a 52, campaign 58. and we, who knows. Exactly. So right
0: now, mm. Vince Cable's the only declared mm. candidate, isn't he? But I mean, you were saying Ed, Ed Davey and, um,
1: uh, uh, and Norman, and Lamb, Norman Lamb two other likely, likely candidates, likely but candidate. not yet confirmed. So one
0: of the things I'm interested mm. in then is what. So why are they standing, other than they'd like to be yeah. leader of the Liberal Democrats, of course, is there a sort of ideological difference here yeah. at play? Yeah. And particularly on the Brexit question, is, 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 are, the, are the Liberal Democrats yeah. agreed on what the policy yeah. should be there or are there, are there disputes there?
1: Yeah. Well, for better or worse, I think the, the, the European position and the Brexit position is pretty much not going to be a matter of much debate in the leadership election. You could have perhaps argued, look at the election result, it should be. And um, the reason I say that is Norman Lamb is the one of the three who abstained on the Article 50 vote. He rebelled on that. But he's already been out in public saying that he supports having a referendum on the terms of the Brexit deal, mm-hmm. um, which is also very much uh, Ed Davey and Vince Cable's position. So I think Europe won't be so much of an issue during the contest. Probably the big issue and the thing that might catapult Vince Cable to sort of comfortable victory or not will be this whole question of uh, how long would Vince Cable be leader for if he gets elected. He is he is extremely... Uh, vigorous and healthy for his age, if I am as active as he is when I get to his age I will be very happy, but he is also um, Happy not, live that long. not, not well. Indeed, yeah, <laughs> indeed, he is not the most useful of candidates, and I think he's made a pitch to say essentially, look, if you really like Joe Swinson, it's okay, vote for me. I'm not going to be leader for that many years, and you can end up having so through the Brexit negotiations,
0: perhaps, uh,
1: so it's something maybe. like that. Um, well, he and decided, he
2: has, he decided not to run for leader in was it 2007 on the basis that he thought he, it was he was a bit too old. Yeah, for exactly. So and he's so now now a decade old older. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
1: um, the risk, however, is that that rather than hoovering up a whole load of Joe Swinson support, ends up backfiring? Because is it credible for the party to have a leader who from day one, one of the questions is, are you still going to be leader next week? Yeah. At what point are you going to stand down? Especially as it's so uncertain when the next election will be.
0: Well, the Liberal Democrats also did get rid of a leader that mm-hmm. they thought was too old to do mm-hmm. the job uh, in me and Campbell. Yeah. Who they was know? significantly younger. It wasn't Mr. the only <laughs> reason, of course. Yeah. There were other issues, but yeah. I mean, it was part yeah. of it. Um, I want to I come to the Ipsos Mori uh, survey this mm-hmm. week. Uh, to finish up before i do uh, adam your thoughts on the liberal democrats i mean difficult situation they find themselves in for lots of reasons um what do you make of some of what mark's been saying well,
2: i think i think mark's completely right that the Lib dems lost out uh, because the election was supposed to be about brexit and then ended up not being about brexit so that core sort of fissure in the labor vote between remainers and a leave leading leadership and and also you know the fact that lots of the Labour leavers were the people that uh, Theresa May was hoping to scoop up and then who ended up coming back to Labour. That wasn't really, that divide wasn't really addressed in the election because Jeremy Corbyn and, and Labour managed to make it very successfully about the issues they wanted to talk about, so the NHS and cuts and, and all sorts of things like that. Um, so that they weren't really probed on that, and so therefore it's still a live issue. And especially as we start to have more of the Brexit bills, you know, the, the great or formerly great repeal bill and all the various intricacies of Brexit, which are going to be in the news week in and week out. And there are going to be various votes and there are going to be various MPs rebellions. And also, And so the issue is not going to go away. And neither is the fact that um, that um, the, le- the leadership is much uh, less pro-Remain than most of the MPs. So it's definitely still um, something that Lib Dems can try and take advantage of especially if the next election is as you said completely about Brexit Mm,
0: who knows And I guess one of the interesting dynamics which we'll come on to in a moment is the young people young people Mm -hmm. (laughs) overwhelmingly back to remain but I wonder with with things like tuition fees you know are there long memories there with the Liberal Democrats because bear in mind Last ele- general election was only a couple of years ago, mm. so maybe memories of Nick Clegg and those those issues haven't gone away. I wanted to finish though um, on the Ipsos Mori survey this week. Now this is something that Ipsos do after every general election. It is still a survey or a poll, so it's not the same as an exit poll um, which Ipsos and GFK sort of jointly um, conducted. But they they tend to do a survey after the election, which looks at how people voted in fact, I think they aggregate a lot of the, the pre election polls if I, if I if 've got that right um, but it's the, it's the most authoritative data we have along with yougov's uh, sort of post election polls um, on how people voted and which way they voted and one of the defining splits which we uh, kind of already knew about really was this issue of age. There were some interesting findings in in, in this data. Middle, the middle class seemed to swing towards Labour. The working classes seemed to swing towards the Conservatives. That's not the same thing as saying that the working classes voted Conservative more than Labour, just that the, the, the change was uh, towards the, to the Tories. Um, Remainers backed Labour 54 to 26. Uh, Leavers backed the Tories 65 to 24. So that Remainer swing to Labour again, very, very evident. But it does seem, from this Ipsos Mori data, that the turnout amongst 18 to 24s was much more in line with what we think it was during the EU referendum. So around the sort of 64, 65 percent mark. Again, this is a survey. It's not the same as an exit poll. So all the usual caveats you would put there. But guys, it does seem to sort of finish off that young, young voters were very engaged in the, um, or comparatively engaged by their own standards in the EU referendum, that's maintained itself a year later in the general election. Um, Do we think that's going to last, or what do we think the implications of that might be, Adam?
2: So what's interesting is there's a really striking chart, I think it's a YouGov chart, where it just shows the percentage of each age group voting for each of Labour and the Conservatives, and it's just two opposing slopes, with young people really heavily tilted towards Labour, old people really heavily tilted towards Conservatives, which just wasn't the case in the election two years ago, when (coughs) parties generally did better at a kind of almost sort of uniform rate among all um, age groups so I wonder if it is um, something that is going to stick around just because of the fact that the result of the EU referendum was so age defined it was so so clearly um, you know old versus young um, and so I wonder if the after effect of that has stuck around Mm. Um, and I imagine it will do so as long as Brexit remains a live issue but again who knows how? long that might be, it might be over- relatively quickly, or it could be one of these long-running sorts. I would
0: add to that, as long as Jeremy Corbyn is the leader of the Labour Party. I mean one of the things that I'm very interested in following and it's going to be fascinating to see how this works is to what extent Jeremy Corbyn will have to follow young voters, or actually young voters follow Jeremy Corbyn. What I mean by that is that you know there is a potential roadblock for the Labour Party over their Brexit policy? We've talked about how they've quite in quite a new Labour fashion, they've triangulated mm. their policy on mm. Brexit very, very effectively. I think that it's fair to say that backing Brexit is probably a lot of the reason why Labour did so well. That's my my opinion. But as decisions have to be made, what will young people think um, about the Labour's position? Or will they will Labour's position have to adapt to better reflect what young people think? I don't know. I really, I'm really, i really curious about this. And I wonder, actually, whether young people support Jeremy Corbyn as much as they support the idea of remaining in the European Union. And actually, he can lead their opinion as much as they can uh, follow a uh, lead his. I mean, Mark, what, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's certainly possible that you could imagine a really popular party leader. And Jeremy Corbyn is the one who fits that description at the moment. Um, well, at least among leads that to age yeah lead, leads to making people think well actually you know the eu this is a slightly abstract thing as well you know are actually okay if if Jeremy Corbyn has got some concessions that's made it a softer Brexit, you know, for example, in terms of say students being still e- easily able to come and study in in the UK and being able to study study in the continent, etc. That oh well, maybe this outcome isn't so bad, and you know you you, you can imagine a leader in that sense leading mm-hmm. leading public opinion. I guess my my one thought on this really is that if you look back over previous elections. Um, almost always the really self-confident predictions made about what the political landscape now looks in the long term, Mm. they turn out to be wrong. And, And... The the apparent long term major factors that we all sort of try and pour over to, to 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 look towards the future very often are much more fragile and brittle than that. My favourite example of this is a book published in the summer of nineteen ninety two called Turning Japanese, um, which was talking about how Britain you know had just been through four conservative election victories in a row, and did this does this mean that Britain was going to turn out like Japan where there was a governing party that always kept on winning elections? and it's a very good book in many ways but it has to be reported that shortly after it was published not only did britain then enter a period of massive conservative party on popularity and four labour election sorry three labour election victories in a row but even in japan mm. the ldp yeah. role model the ldp yeah. also then mm. went into a prolonged period of being sort of in and out of power and no longer having a firm grip on things and yet if you actually look back at the chapters in that book and the reasons they give for their predictions, they look, even though we know they turn out horrendously wrong, they actually look pretty good and pretty mm-hmm. solid in the context of the time when they were made. So I think it's, it, you know, politics is for better overall, uh, massively uncertain in that sense. Mm-hmm. There are a few genuine long term trends, but many, many fewer than, than we tend to talk about.
0: So five-year parliament and the Tories win from Mark. No, yeah, well, well,
1: <laughs> well. You see, if, I mean, who in whose interest is it going to be to get rid of Theresa May? You know, the DUP have got the most political power they've ever got, they've you know ever had in their history as a party and probably mm. ever will in that sense. So you know, they've got quite a good reason to keep propping up a Tory minority yeah. government. Any Tory. Who wants to succeed Theresa May? Do they really want to succeed her in a position where they may then be forced into an early election? So, you know, Theresa May, still Prime Minister in five years' time, not quite as unlikely as I And it as I say, think.
0: events, dear boy, events, who knows what might happen. Yeah. If, if
1: we can maybe record see. another version where I say that she'll go by <laughs> Christmas and then we've got the perfect option. In fact, in the I, the think, I think
0: I've just seen she's just resigned. Yeah. Now, <laughs> I'm I'm, um, final word to you, Adam, what do you think?
2: Um... Yeah, the, <laughs> been a victim of uh, predicting long-term trends myself because we. Uh, <laughs> how, long,
0: how long will this parliament last? Do you?
2: I think it's. I think it's over as we're recording right now. No. I think. I think uh, the Queen's speech will be defeated. No. Um. It's. Yeah, I, I agree. It's. It's. <laughs> as somebody's been made to look foolish by making predictions which then don't pan out. Um. Yeah, I completely see that, but also completely get the uh, the fact that if you look back at the reasons behind lots of predictions, they make sense. It's yeah. just that ultimately events then go and sort of prove them wrong. Um. One of the things. You're right, in in whose interest is it for uh, Theresa May to be replaced? And I wonder which which Conservative MP wants to be, who would want to be in that position, unless they're certain they're going Mm. to suddenly become incredibly popular and win an election. Why would anybody want to take over that job at the moment where you're a Conservative minority government, economy starting to sort of look a bit flaky, Mm. about to go through the biggest challenge that any government's faced um, since the Second World War? It doesn't seem a very appealing job.
0: I mean, I'll give the final word here. I think that what we saw with Jeremy Corbyn when he became leader of the Labour Party was there was there was an appetite for people to stand for something, and there was this idea that Liz Kendall, um, Andy Burnham, and Yvette Cooper didn't, or, or what they stood for was very wishy-washy. I
2: think it's it unfair what? to Kendall there, but, but well, fair on the other two. Yeah, <laughs>
0: maybe, maybe so. Um, but I think if you're if I if I, if you're David Davis, Boris Johnson, Amber Rudd. Damian Green's been mentioned, whoever whoever it is, you should be spending this time to decide what it is you're actually for, because I'm convinced that just shouting socialism at Jeremy Corbyn, it loudly in the right-wing press, is not going to be enough. Jeremy Corbyn, whether you support him or oppose him, is offering something, he's offering change, and you've got to offer, and I think the Conservatives have got to offer that change too. It, it, obviously in a different way, the, the, ideologically, but they've got to offer people something because say what you like about Margaret Thatcher, you were very clear about mm. what she what she wanted to do, but also she gave people some things like buying your own mm. house mm. and things like that. So there has to be an offer from the Conservatives and simply just screaming at traitors and communists and all this sort of stuff makes them look, to be honest, if you make them look desperate and like they're running out of ideas. And I think that I, any sense that catches hold and maybe we should poll this next week, of of the government have run out of ideas, I think could be really dangerous. And and I think the comparison
1: with Margaret Thatcher is an interesting one, because part of what she was very successful at attacking the Labour Party over was uh, in itself offering an alternative solution in her eyes and her supporters' eyes to the problems of the time. Mm. So in terms of attacking Labour over nationalised industries in the 70s and the 80s and arguing for privatisation... You know, that was presented as a solution to part of Britain's problems at the time. So simply saying, you know, that the current Labour Party, well, you know, wanting to nationalise, for example, railways and so on is a bad thing. The problem is that doesn't offer any alternative solution to what, you know, how are you going to improve Mm. uh, some of the some of the rail franchises that are that are really struggling. And so, as you say, I think the real risk for the Tories, and we saw this in a way in the election, is they're opposing Labour, but in a way that doesn't give an alternative picture of how to make the country better.
0: Mm. And if you're going to call a snap election, make sure you know what your manifesto is going to include and not. That's unfortunately all we've got time for, for this week's politicalbetting.com polling matters podcast. Big thanks to Dr. Mark Peck and Adam Drummond for their insights today. Um, if you like what you hear, please do share our episodes on social media in any way you can. As I've always say, I bleat on about it now, but it does really help get the podcast's voice out there. If you really like what we uh, do, then please give us a a like, uh, a nice rating, or a comment on iTunes. The the algorithm gods make that make that uh, put podcasts up the charts, and that really helps us grow our audience. But for now, thanks as ever for listening, and stay tuned for more episodes in the coming weeks where we'll be dissecting what's going on and hopefully uh, we won't have a general election to cover too soon but who knows so do stay tuned for more episodes in the coming weeks